I knew it was wrong. I didn't know how illegal it was. I figured it was illegal. I just didn't think I was going to get caught. I'm pretty sure I convinced myself that I wasn't harming anything or anyone. I wasn't a slut. You know, I wasn't a partier. I wasn't the bad girl. I wasn't the drug druggie. I was a liar. I was kind of like the big man on campus. It kind of got a little easier with each one that I did after that to the point where it started to feel a little bit comfortable and there was nothing wrong with doing it. I even asked my lawyer, I mean, I'm certainly not going to go to jail for this. I mean, you know, what, you know, what, what, what do they do with guys like me? They don't send me to jail. Can I pick up paper on the road? I mean, what am I going to do? And he says, no, they send guys like you to jail. people here have lied at least once since the beginning of 2014. <laughs> How many people here think of yourself in general as honest, wonderful people? <laughs> the same group. How can it be? How can it be that at the same time we think of ourselves as, as honest and then we recognize that we're dishonest? It turns out it's all about rationalization. My name is Dan Ariely and I'm interested in human behavior. I'm interested in rationality and irrationality. I'm interested in the cases in which we make good decisions and the cases in which we make bad decisions. But they'll do first the roles constraint and then they'll do the real. Together with colleagues and students, we run hundreds of experiments to try and understand human behavior. And in the last few years, we've been focusing on dishonesty. We watch corporate scandals everywhere. Enron, WorldCom, the financial crisis of 2008. We saw an increase in cheating in professional sports. Have you ever used steroids? No. I have never used steroids. I have never doped. We witnessed political deception and its huge repercussions. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. On one hand, we want to look at the mirror and think that we are good, honest, wonderful people. On the other hand, we want to benefit selfishly from being dishonest. As long as we cheat just a little bit, we don't have to pay any price in terms of the image and the way we view ourselves. And we call this the fudge factor. So this is the ability to misbehave and think of ourselves as good people. And you can think about all kinds of ways in which in your own life, you have a fudge factor, the speed limit. Maybe it says 55, but are you okay in driving 60? What about cheating a little bit on taxes? What about exaggerating their online dating profile? <laughs> Across many studies, we find that everything that changes the fudge factor also changes people's ability to be dishonest. There are dozens of elements that can change the magnitude of the fudge factor. And we've been able to observe many of them in the lab. For example, if you can say to yourself, everybody's doing it, it's easier for you to rationalize to yourself that this is actually an okay thing to do and cheat to a higher degree. 
In order to study dishonesty, we need to be able to measure, hopefully precisely, the extent to which people are dishonest. So we have all kinds of methods, I'll describe one of them. You can just have a seat anywhere with a packet and a pen in front of it. We gave people 20 simple math problems. Find the two numbers that add up to 10. These are problems that everybody could solve if they had enough time, but we don't give people enough time. We are going to give you five minutes to solve as many as possible. At the end of the five minutes, please stop. Put your pencil down and count how many questions you got correctly. And now that you know how many questions you got correctly, take the sheet of paper, go to the front of the room and shred it. People do that, they come to the front, they say they solve six problems, pay them six dollars, they go home. There you go, thank you for participating. What the people in the experiment don't know is that we played with the shredder. The shredder shred the size of the page, but the body of the page remains intact. <laughs> and what do we find? On average, people solve four problems and report to be solving six. I solved six. I don't know if this is embarrassing or not, but I got six. I believe I got seven right. We've ran these experiments on 40,000 people. And so far we found about 20 big cheaters. Those are people who cheated all the way, said they solved 20 problems, and they stole $400 from us. And we also found about 20-some thousand little cheaters, and they stole about $50,000 from us. And I think this is not a bad reflection of reality. Yes, there are some big cheaters out there, but they are very rare. And because of that, their overall economic impact is relatively low. On the other hand, we have a ton of little cheaters. And because there are so many of us, the economic impact of small cheating is actually incredibly, incredibly high. I think having a first affair definitely makes a second affair easier because you've already been there and done that. You, um, you know that you can get away with it, you know, because you did before. I think a really important skill is to be good at lying. So, like, if you do it in, like, a really good way, <laughs> you don't have to worry about them catching you. So that's why I think it's good to be good at lying. Sometimes you also have to lie in a way because you're making somebody happy. Like, if you're throwing a surprise birthday party, then that means they're obviously trying to help and get ready or do something. And so you're lying to your friend to help them have a good birthday. All creatures... Uh, big or small, uh, have deception as part of their armamentary. Oftentimes it's just survival. You know, a plant or a bird might change color and camouflage itself, which is a form of deception. The bigger the brain, the larger the capacity to lie. Chimpanzees, for example, have been known to lie where they may lead their group away from where the food is so that that one particular chimpanzee can come back to the food later on and find that food. 
it's very common for children, younger children, to, to fib. And for them, it gives them pleasure. It helps them imagine things, and it helps them build their brain and helps them build what is called the theory of mind, a psychological theory by which, as our brains mature, we're able to predict and imagine what the other person's thinking about. And unless children lie and unless children imagine and dream big, they may not have the full capacity to develop a theory of mind. In one project, Dan and I decided to look at what's the influence of others' unethical behavior on our own decisions to cheat. So we designed an experiment with different type of conditions. So imagine the same experiment I described to you before, but with one main difference. We hired an acting student, and 30 seconds into the experiment, he raised his hand. Yeah, I, I got all of them. Can I? What do I do? And they say, I solved everything. What do I do next? I sure come up here. I'm done. Now, this is 30 seconds into the experiment. You are still on question number one. <laughs> there is no question in your mind that that person is cheating. And the experimenter said, you finished everything. You're free to go. There you go. Thanks very and much. And you see that person taking all the amount of money and going home. What would happen to your own morality? Well, lots more people cheat. But there could be two explanations here. One explanation is we just prove to people that in this experiment there's no downside for cheating. The second possibility is that it's not about the fact that they wouldn't catch you, it's about the fact that it's actually socially okay. Thank you for participating. And so we decided to study this by looking at whether the person cheating is somebody like us, somebody we feel similar to, or somebody who's very different from us. We ran this experiment at Carnegie Mellon. Everybody was a Carnegie Mellon student. The acting student was a Carnegie Mellon student. We dressed the acting student in the University of Pittsburgh sweatshirt. <laughs> now, what happens if you're a University of Carnegie Mellon student and a Pittsburgh student cheats? You still know that you can get away with it. Here's the proof that somebody goes home with all the money. But you don't think that people like you are doing it. And what happens now? Cheating goes down. So it's not about the probability of being caught. It's about the question of what is socially acceptable in our circle. On the computer screen, you will see a square. It will be divided into two. There will be a right half and a left half. We're going to flash some dots in this square just for half a second. Your task, if you were a participant in the experiment, is just to tell me which side of the line has more dots. And it's usually pretty obvious which side. There's like a lot here and not very many here. Now there's one more thing. We're not going to pay you the same amount for the right and for the left. But regardless of the amount, your task is to basically be as accurate and truthful as possible. Ready? Go! The dot task is a basic experiment in conflicts of interest. Very, very few people start by lying egregiously. But if the dots are kind of similar, just slightly more to the left, they would say right. Almost any moral conflict you can think of as there's a line <laughs> and you have to decide whether you're going to cross it or not. 
you kind of want to go to the other side and you kind of know what the right side is. Maybe I'll go to the other side sometimes. Our brain gets accustomed to lying because after a while, the negative value of lying, the negative feeling, um, is just not there so much. I was sitting in the lounge, charging my phone, and all of a sudden you hear the announcement, your flight's about to take off. So I run out, and I get to my flight, and I sit in my seat, and then I realize as the door is closing, my phone is in the charger in the lounge. I run up to the girls in the front, the stewards, which you must sit down, miss, we're just taking off. You must. No, you can't. My phone's in the lounge. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Listen, I work for CNN News. I'm on the air tomorrow, and I need to have my phone because everything that I've just worked on is sitting in this phone. So I, guess what? The plane went back. They got my phone. Woman hands me my phone, and everyone in the place looks at me and goes, who the f*** is that? We kind of anecdotally know that once you lie, you're more likely to lie again. And probably the second lie will be bigger than the first. What we find in the brain is that, at the beginning, if you lie a little bit, there's a huge response in regions involved in emotion, such as the amygdala and the insula. The tenth time you lie, even if you lie the same amount, the response is not that high. So while lying goes up over time, the response in your brain goes down. We think that the reason that this happens is because of a very basic principle of the brain, which is the brain adapts. For example, if you're listening to music and it's quite low volume, and I turn it up like two notches, it will feel like a really big difference, right? But if you're listening to the radio and it's really high volume, and then I put it up two notches, you won't even feel it. The brain is coding everything relative to what the baseline is. The same goes with dishonesty. If we're pretty much honest people and we haven't lied and now we're telling a lie, the brain is coding this as a really big difference relative to our baseline. But if we're dishonest and we lie quite a lot, the brain doesn't respond so much. After a while, the negative value of lying, the negative feeling um, is just not there so much which kind of makes you just fly more and more and more. For a split second, for a split second, I said, I can fix this. And then the totality of, of what I had done, it, just, it was just coming crashing down. I mean, there's, there was no way that I could fix it. We did a study with 12,000 golf players. We said, imagine the ball fell on the rough, not a good place. And you really, really wanted it to be four inches to the left. Would you pick it up and move it four inches? And people said, heaven forbid. You understand the nature of the game, how people feel about it? Nobody would do that. Fine, nobody does that. What about kicking the ball? No problem whatsoever. <laughs> What about hitting it with a club? It's even easier. And you know what's the easiest? 
if you're not looking. Like, if you look up and then you kick a little bit. <laughs> but I think you can feel the intuition that if you pick something up and you moved it, the act would feel incredibly deliberate. But if there was some distance, you kicked it, something happened, all of a sudden this distance would allow people to have a bit more ambiguity in the connection between them and the final act. So imagine the same experiment I described earlier. You fill in your sheets, you solve these little problems, you shred the piece of paper and you come to the experimenter. You tell them how much money you deserve. You tell it in tokens. I solve X problems, I deserve X tokens. So now you pay them in pieces of plastic. They take this piece of plastic, walk 12 feet to the side and change it for dollars. So when somebody looks you in the eyes and they lie, they don't lie for money, they lie for something else, but that thing becomes money very quickly. What happened? In our experiment, people doubled their cheating. There we go. Thank you. This, by the way, is the most troubling result I think we got. Think about it. In a society, we're moving away from money. Credit cards, stock, stock options, derivatives, dealing with people over great distances. Could it be that as these distances in all of their versions are increasing, people find it easier to misbehave and still think of themselves or ourselves as good people? And I think the answer is absolutely, absolutely yes. We went to a bar in Washington, D.C., where congressional staffers hang out in. And we went to a bar in New York City where bankers hang out. So who cheats more, the bankers or the politicians? <laughs> who votes for bankers? Who votes for politicians? Okay, many more for politicians. The bankers cheated twice as much. <laughs> you can't be happy with this result. Like there's no, there's no way that this is a good result. If we took all the elements that we studied and we combined them into one environment, we would get an environment that is very similar to the one that operated in the financial crisis of 2008. Not in generations has Wall Street absorbed the number of body blows it took today. Three of the five biggest investment banks are gone. The country's biggest mortgage lender is gone. We had politicians, bankers, regulators, and even investors, all influenced by many factors. Self-deception, social norms, distance from money, lying for the benefits of others, and of course, conflicts of interest. And this is what I think corruption is all about. It's about that when you get into a system and something in the system tells you that things are wrong there, all of a sudden you abandon your own moral fiber. And because of that, we really need to figure out what can we do about it? How can we get people to behave better? Because if we don't, we're just going to get more and more disasters like the one we've just experienced. Many of the experiments that we have conducted are about trying to find ways to curb dishonesty. We went to UCLA and we asked about 500 undergrads to try and recall the Ten Commandments. We asked people to write down as many of the Ten Commandments as a could remember, and then we put them in a situation where they could cheat with the matrix task. How many of them do you think recalled all Ten Commandments? Zero, that's right. <laughs> By the way, they invented lots of interesting ones. 
What happened after people tried to recall the Ten Commandments, even if they were unsuccessful? Nobody cheated. It wasn't as if the people who remembered more commandments, the people who are presumably more religious, cheated less, and the people who remembered almost none of them cheated more. Nobody cheated. It didn't matter what religion the participants had. You know what the Ten Commandments are about. They are about a moral code. They are about proper behavior. And just knowing that and being reminded of that decreases dishonesty. In fact, even when we take self-declared atheists and ask them to swear on the Bible, they stop cheating. It is not about heaven and hell and being caught. It's about reminding ourselves about our own moral fiber. We found this result to be very promising, but we wanted to test it in a non-religious context. So we went to MIT and we did a similar experiment with honor codes. So we got students at MIT to sign the honor code. I understand that this short study falls under the MIT honor code. They did it, shredded a piece of paper. What happened? No cheating whatsoever. And no cheating whatsoever, despite the fact that MIT doesn't have an honor code. <laughs> then we replicated the experiment at Princeton. Princeton has a very strong honor code. In fact, the freshmen get a whole week of uh, crash course on morality, lectures, discussion. So we took the Princeton students signing the honor code and not signing the honor code, the MIT students signing the honor code and not. Was there any difference? No. When they did not sign the honor code, they both cheated to the same level. When they signed the honor code, none of them cheated. And I think this is kind of a mixture of good news and bad news. The bad news is the crash course on morality, particularly the Princeton version, doesn't seem to have any effect two weeks down the road. The good news is that even without a crash course, reminding people about their own moral fiber does change how people behave.